What we choose to eat either contributes to or exacerbates environmental degradation, global poverty, and human health. The UN states that raising animals for food is, quote, one of the major causes of the world's most pressing environmental issues such as global warming, land degradation, air and water pollution, and loss of biodiversity. Growing crops to feed them to farm animals is driving up the price of grains and legumes and entrenching global poverty. To produce enough food for 9 billion people by 2050, we will need a much more efficient system. The Center for Disease Control in the US found that tens of millions of Americans get sick every year from eating contaminated meat and that 80% of the antibiotics produced in the US are given to farm animals, making the people who consume them antibiotic resistant. Yet, global demand for meat is expected to increase by more than 70% between 2011 and 2050. This prediction is based on a combination of population growth and increased per capita demand, especially in developing countries where meat consumption has been relatively low a looming food security issue that cannot be ignored. There is simply not enough arable land, even if all the world's remaining forests were cleared, to continue producing meat in the way we currently do. In this episode, we talk about the future of food. Plant-based protein that sates both the growing demand for meat and meets the nutritional requirements of people in emerging economies. We are speaking with the Managing Director of Good Food Institute. Good Food Institute is a global non-profit organization that is engaged in promoting plant-based and cultivated meat sector by fostering innovation, supporting startups, engaging with corporations and influencing institutions. And to that end, we have with us Varun Deshpande. So hi Varun and thank you so much for being on this episode. Hi Sanchi, thank you for having me. Thank you. Can you please start off by telling us all about this alternative meat industry that is quickly growing? Yeah, absolutely. So firstly, I should say I'm the managing director at the Good Food Institute India. We have multiple affiliate organizations across the world in the US, Brazil, Israel, East Asia based out of Hong Kong, Singapore and and China, mainland China, and then Europe based out of the UK as well as Brussels. So we're, we're spread out all across the world. And as you said, what we do is we focus on accelerating this alternative protein sector. And alternative proteins are an incredibly exciting category of food that has been absolutely exploding over the last several years. So if you've seen a little bit about the Impossible Burger or the Beyond Burger, you know what I'm talking about when I say plant-based meats. Plant-based meats are products that are made from plants or from crop ingredients but which have the exact taste and smell and cooking ability of meat that's sourced from animals. The reason to do this is because uh, industrial animal agriculture, that is the large scale factory farming of animals is tremendously damaging to the planet uh, in terms of its effect on the environment, greenhouse gas emissions, ocean acidification, land use, public health, including yes, pandemics, uh, and then food security. So plant-based meats have have emerged as a category that are incredibly efficient, orders of magnitude more efficient in terms of land, water, non-renewable energy use, all of these things. 
uh, and they're really taking the world by storm. So these, these products are already out in the market. Some of these companies um, are being sold in dozens of thousands of food service locations. And they're really well-placed even in the current scenario of COVID-19 affecting the world economy to fundamentally change the way the world eats, and they're already doing so. Uh, on the other side of this, we also have an emerging category called cultivated meat, uh, which is basically when you take cells from an animal, so like chicken cells from a chicken or pig cells from a pig, uh, and then you sort of farm those cells directly by growing them directly instead of farming the animal and slaughtering it. Uh, and the result of what you get is 100% biologically meat, just made in a different way. All of this work, all of this technology that's being deployed uh, is really fundamentally changing the way the world is eating and is going to eat. We genuinely believe that in the next 10, 20, 30 years, we're going to be able to look back and say, we had a different option uh, and we're glad that we made this transformation in the global protein supply. That's great. Um, I actually do know about Beyond Meat and Impossible Burgers, and I've been very fortunate to have Beyond Meat Burgers in London. And when are these, are these companies thinking of coming to India? And if so, when will they come and what kind of challenges will they face? So it's worth noting, of course, that all of these companies came forward with the insight that people in the United States eat a lot of meat per capita. Americans eat something like three burgers a week on average, beef burgers a week on average, which is crazy for all of the reasons that I described above. So if you look at, for example, the meat industry's effect on the environment, you need to grow crops on a huge amount of land. Roughly 70% of the world's agricultural land is dedicated to growing crops or grazing of animals, all right? And then you feed it to animals, and then you feed a portion of those animals to humans as food. So for these reasons, and then by the way, you need to till that land, you need to have chemical inputs into that land, you need to use water, you need to transport, let's say, chickens from, from where they're stored to the feedlot, to the slaughterhouse, etc. For these reasons and many more, you have a huge ecological footprint emerging from animal agriculture. So these companies said, we are going to make meat just made differently because everything that's in animal meat, water, minerals, lipids, protein, amino acids, all of these things are available in plants also. And if we are able to replace those burgers with plant-based burgers that taste the same or better and eventually cost the same or less, that's going to create a huge impact for all the reasons I described. So if you take just one of those burgers that Americans are eating every week and switch it out for a Beyond Burger, you would be taking 12.2 million cars off the road or powering 2.3 million additional homes. It's really this, this idea of benefiting the, the world by stealth because people don't need to sacrifice anything to do this. It just feels like a simple switch. All wow. that being said, these companies were set up in the United States. So their entire innovation ethos, their entire consumer-focused ethos is kind of centered mainly on a Western context. They've been expanding out into Asia more recently. They've done really cool, innovative products in places like Singapore. Impossible Foods, which also makes a plant-based burger, was in 140 restaurants in Singapore within four months of launching there last year. So they're looking at different formats and different places that they're launching in. But I think India is not top of the list currently. The reason for this is manifold. So India is a hard place to enter when it comes to the business environment, when it comes to the import-export regimes, but also it's, it's a little bit uncertain how Indians would uniformly respond to something like this. America is such a homogenous eating society. There isn't a category of food that Indians eat as much as Americans eat 
burgers and pizzas, etc. So it's, it's a fragmented market. It's difficult to enter. And so it's a big challenge. So what's probably going to happen, and I guess we've dived right into the middle of this with the first two questions, but what's probably going to happen in India is we'll see really interesting innovation from entrepreneurs on the ground in India that address local needs that really give consumers as well as large corporations the option of consuming and manufacturing these delicious products that are fit for local purpose. So we're talking about kebabs, we're talking about keema, we're talking about biryani, which is hugely popular on, on the platforms like Zomato and Swiggy. We'll see a lot emerge over the next year or two years. And hopefully those companies will actually offer competition to the impossibles and the beyonds of this world. I want to ask you, during your time as Managing Director for Good Food Institute India, what are some of the consumer awareness levels that you have come in contact with? Like, so for example, you're speaking to people, you're, you're working with institutions, you're working with the government, and what is their perception of this alternative meat industry? So we've done one study that's, that's centered on consumer perception of plant-based and cultivated meat in India. It was a cross-cultural survey actually of India, China, and the US. And it turned out at least in terms of theoretical acceptance, because many of, many of the people we surveyed had never actually eaten those products before, Indians outrank or score higher than uh, even the US or China when it comes to plant-based meat. So 62.8% of Indians said they would very much like to try or buy plant-based meat, which is great, right? So in terms of theoretical acceptance, Indians perform better than, than other countries. And we think that some of the reason for this, the underlying reasons for this may be that India is actually not as vegetarian as other countries believe them to be. So people around the world believe that India is majority vegetarian. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, it, it turns out that we're not. So something like 71% of Indians self-identify as non-vegetarian in census level, really large scale surveys. But by default, we are kind of guilty non-vegetarian. Yeah. So every aspect of at least Hindu culture, which is the dominant religion in India, tends to view animal foods, with the exception of dairy, I guess, but animal sourced foods in general as being unclean, not fit for use in, uh, during religious times or in religious rites, and all of those things that are kind of deep-seated within our cultural ethos. And so the global group or the global sentiment that's driving forward the consumption of plant-based meats is actually non-vegetarians who want to switch to vegetarianism. In India, that might be the default. We actually have a default sentiment of non-vegetarians being guilty about their non-veg consumption. So I'm sure that, I, I don't know if, you're, if your mother is like this, but my mother is very much a, a Tuesday, Saturday vegetarian. <laughs> she, she won't eat non-vegetarian on those days. She won't eat eggs on those days. During the entire month of Shravan, which is again a Hindu festival, she won't eat non-vegetarian or eggs during that entire month. So the flexitarian sentiment in India is kind of like guilty non-veg and it's very pervasive in the entire population. On yeah. the other side, you do, have, you do have some of the same stuff that's going on globally among younger cohorts is growing on in India as well. So in India, the younger generations, especially Gen Z, but also younger millennials are very clued on to climate change trends, very clued on to the idea that the choices we make are having a huge impact on the world right now. And this is, by the way, underscored with the COVID-19 pandemic we're experiencing currently, which we can get into. So people want to eat like their global counterparts to a certain extent with respect to those desires. And so this might be the perfect mix 
of uh, plant-based meat and cultivated meat providing a middle path forward because it doesn't involve slaughter, which is frankly a filthy process because it involves animal waste, it involves antibiotics, it involves a lot of contamination. And then you get to have what you wanted to eat, but made in a different way. Yeah. I was laughing because when you said that we are guilty non-vegetarians, I think that's so true because even while I was growing up, so my entire family is vegetarian, I quit eating meat a while ago. But it's so true that like even while growing up, it was like, okay, if there's the time of Navratri, then you're not supposed to eat meat or you're not supposed to eat eggs. But then around, the, you know, around when it's not Navratri or when it's not another festival, it's absolutely fine to do so. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, if you, if you dig a little bit deeper into global consumer demand and sentiment, when it comes to buying behavior, overwhelmingly, it's been proven over and over again that the factors which affect consumer buying behavior are as simple as taste, price, and access or convenience. Yeah. So if something is available that tastes the same or better and costs the same or less and is available everywhere, you would otherwise buy meat. People have the choice to make a simple switch so it doesn't feel like a sacrifice. Yeah. So you have all of these underlying drivers, right, of, of guilt, of religion, of the environment, of the climate. But generally, none of those things come at the expense of taste and price. So we, we do need to work on all of those things. You mentioned that we're working with the government, we're working with scientists, we're doing open access research, we're working directly with entrepreneurs. You need to fit all of those pieces into place so that you're actually able to give people what we call our entire theory of change, which is tastes the same or better and costs the same or less. Otherwise, you're not going to have this switch actually happen and be sustainable. Yeah. And you talked a little bit about how the West is quite homogenous when compared to India. And I think that's certainly the case because I remember I had this conversation once with one of my friends who is quite British. And he is, how, how do I put this, vehemently vegan. So... We were having this conversation actually about organ donation and he said that he would never donate his organ to somebody who ate meat because that would be tantamount to him donating it to a rapist, which is quite an extreme viewpoint, you know, especially when you bring it back to a country as diverse and divided as India, where meat eating is already quite politicized. It's already quite communalized. And so my question to you is actually like twofold, I guess. So first is, how crucial is the tenet of veganism to this rise in alternative protein, alternative meat industry? And also, can alternative meat in India sort of surpass these communal political divisions? So to answer your first question, for us, veganism doesn't play into this at all. Many folks are saying that the, that the percentage of, of people that are eating vegan globally is rising. But that's mainly only happened in the last few years when these products have been available on the market, right? A more important piece of information is that of the hundreds of thousands of, of people that are eating these products, let's say in the US, when it comes to the Beyond Burger and the Impossible Burger, the vast majority of their consumers are people who already eat meat. So they're not vegans. They're not avowed staunch vegans like your friend in the UK. They're not ethical vegans who absolutely wouldn't touch something that even tastes like meat. The entire enterprise of this sector is to provide meat eaters with a simple switch so that they can reduce their, their footprint on the planet and in terms of global health, in terms of food insecurity, all of those things. So I would say that veganism and its growth overall is a good thing for the planet, but it's not necessarily the thing that's driving our sector forward. So that, that's why the Good Food Institute was started, which is 
you know, all the things I'm telling you, the ecological footprint of factory farming, the fact that you need to grow all of these crops and feed them to animals. So a chicken takes in nine calories of input for every one calorie of output that it gives you in the form of meat. Why? Because it's a biological creature, right? So if you and I were sitting around watching Netflix, we would burn calories. That's what a chicken's doing. It's, it's, it's breathing, it's metabolizing, it's growing feathers, it's, it's, it's changing. So it's expending calories. So it's an incredibly inefficient protein production platform, but that's been known for decades. Everything I'm describing to you has been known for an extremely long time and nothing really changed. In fact, the world is still eating on average or rather in aggregate, the world is still eating more meat than ever before. 2020 is likely to be an anomaly because the entire global economy is going to be affected by COVID-19. But up until 2019, the world ate as much meat as ever before. And so you can't really say that veganism is driving any of this. What I will say is that it's an essential complement to the work that we're doing. So I think, I think it is really important to talk about the, the moral challenges facing us in terms of the way that we're approaching our world and the way that we're thinking about other species. And the consequences of that are, have never been more clear than now when we're faced with a global pandemic that's, that's, as I said, putting the economy through a severe amount of stress and is going to result in a huge number of deaths globally. What we're really encouraged by is as a result of the work done by companies like Impossible Foods, Beyond Meat, and the other companies with whom we work and the open access research we've been putting out, et cetera, the biggest meat companies in the world are saying that they want to consider themselves protein companies and not meat companies. The CEO of Tyson Foods, which is America's biggest meat producer and the second biggest meat producer in the world, said a couple of years ago, if we can grow meat without the animal, why wouldn't we? These are companies, Tyson Foods, Cargill, these are companies that have been selling meat for decades, for an extremely long time. And they're seeing this as fundamentally an opportunity to rebrand themselves as protein companies, to diversify their, their lines of business. And that's going to be incredibly powerful and good for the world. Yeah. So that, that, that's what we see as being uh, the biggest driver of this and, and extremely important to its future as well. I'm sorry, I lost your second question. <laughs> My second question was if you think that alternative meat has the potential to surpass all of the divisions that exist in India? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Actually, the way, that, the way that you stated it is exactly how we're thinking about this. So we think about plant-based and cultivated meat as an opportunity to bridge cultural and religious divide. So if you think through some of the issues that are faced in terms of activism resulting in the death of people who are herding cattle because they might be eating beef, or you know, any, any unrest on the other side as well, that all can be eliminated if we're able to make meat without slaughter. Now, we're not going to solve the problem of underlying divisions within religion, within caste, etc. Those are, those are deep-seated and very difficult to solve. Mm-hmm. But the, the tipping points, the flashpoints for a lot of that violence can be addressed. Uh, more importantly, I think in India, we should be looking at this as a Uh, as an opportunity to address severe problems that we have in our population related to malnutrition as well as farmers' income. So in terms of economic growth and health security, these are hugely, hugely important, right? So we have among the the highest number of malnourished children and people anywhere in the world. That includes iron deficiency anemia. It includes folic acid defects resulting in a debilitating condition called neural tube defects. We have uh, farmers committing suicide because they're simply not able to grow crops and sell into markets. All of these things are things we should think through as hugely important to solve. So the value proposition for India and of India to the world is very different 
or unique in that respect. So if we're able to create affordable, sustainable sources of meat so that you can go to an urban slum in Mumbai or in Delhi and say to a family of four, okay, you were spending 460 rupees a week on one mutton meal. And if you could spend 920 rupees a week, you absolutely would to get two mutton meals. Now here's something that tastes exactly like mutton, okay, that is plant-based mutton that didn't involve slaughter or a complex value chain uh, and we can get it to you consistently and on time and most importantly it's affordable and you can cook it the way you like it'll still bring people together in the same way it's still aspirational in the same way that's going to solve huge problems yeah so those are the kinds of things that we want to do and accomplish over the next decade or more in india yeah and so what do you think is india's contribution to how you envisage this global good food revolution taking place yeah, so I hinted at the, the value proposition of India is a little different and unique, right? So yeah. the idea here is, look, we have, we have a huge amount of agricultural biodiversity in this country that isn't necessarily found in other parts of the world. 51% of our, of our population is still reliant on agriculture. That's not going to go away. Agriculture is a, it's a secular industry that cuts across different divides and that, that is going to continue to be a deep part of our economy for a very long time. So whereas the world is going to continue urbanizing at a very rapid rate, even with a lot of urbanization in India over the next decades, we'll still have a very large farmer cohort. So the opportunity to grow crops that are specialized for this sector, to utilize things like pulses and millets and even hemp and bongomia, there's, there's so many different diverse crops in India that can be used for our sector and then deliver income to those farmers for growing those crops. The potential is huge. To give you an example, Beyond Meat makes their Beyond Burgers from pea protein. So that, that's growing yellow peas and then extracting the protein from it and then making products from it. So in the US, at the end of 2018, this yellow pea for, for pea protein was grown on something like 880,000 acres of land. At the end of 2019, it was grown on 1.1 million acres of land. So that's an almost 30% jump in one year because one company scaled up. Yeah. Another example is the just egg, which is made from moon beans, which again, by the way, have been cultivated in India for something like 4,000 years. They make a scrambled egg from the moon bean that, that tastes exactly like egg. All right. They've scaled up hugely and you're going to be hearing about them in the same vein as, as we currently hear about impossible foods and beyond meat globally. And because they make this from moon beans, they need to source those moon beans from all over the world. So if within the next couple of years, just meets its, projections for how much egg they can sell, how much moon bean egg they can sell, they're going to be the largest buyer of moon beans anywhere in the world. We should be cultivating those crops in India and delivering some of that value to farmers as well as industries to extract that protein and create jobs and deliver value to the Indian population. So there's, there's a lot that we can do on that front. On the second, on, on another front rather, I mentioned this uh, in terms of delivering value for protein extraction, but more broadly, manufacturing is a huge piece of India's possible contribution to this sector. So if you look at any of these companies, the ones that are scaling up, the specialized machinery and the, and the expertise that you need in order to scale up these companies is not available in many parts of the world. So Impossible Foods, when they got a contract to go into Burger King, they were running one plant in Oakland, California for three shifts a day, which means 24 hours a day. And there is no way that they would have been able to meet that demand. So they had to sign a deal with a huge manufacturer to, to actually be able to supply to Burger King's 7,200 locations in North America. 
We should yeah. be looking to do some of this in India. We should be looking to manufacture either the, the ingredients or even the finished products in India and then shift them to all parts of the world. So in terms of creating jobs, creating manufacturing income, creating expertise that elevates India to the forefront of this sector, there's a lot that we can do to have a unique value proposition for it. Yeah. And I mean, I, for one, would love to have the Beyond Meat Burger at McDonald's because I think that would be great. It means that I don't have to forego my McDonald's burger and I can get something better than the paneer wrap, you know? So I think it's a win-win situation right there. Um, Absolutely. Another area, sorry, excuse me. Another oh, no, area that, that, that's really important for India to be involved in is on the pharmaceutical side. So companies like Biocon, Cipla, Dr. Reddy's, they already have a significant portion of their revenue right now coming from manufacturing and marketing products for the international market. So if you look at any of these companies, how they've been set up, how they are integral to the global landscape of drug development. And then you apply some of those principles to cultivated meat, which is the other side, as I mentioned, you can apply a lot of the same manufacturing techniques to create these massive supply chains that are clean, that are transparent uh, to consumers in ways that the animal supply chain absolutely is not currently. Uh, yeah. There's a huge opportunity on that side as well. And I should say that especially with COVID-19 affecting China's perception globally, and with so much of the world's manufacturing currently concentrated within China, the next three, five, 10 years is a real opportunity for countries like India to step up and say, look, we should present ourselves as an alternative on every front. And this industry, which is alternative protein, is a particularly promising front on which to do that. Yeah. Let us now actually address the elephant in the room of, well, it's not really an elephant, is it? It's quite obvious. It's everywhere. It's a massive bug fest that we are in. How is COVID-19 affecting the way we eat food? And where is it all heading? Like, where are our food supply chains heading? Well, so, I mean, the overall effect of COVID-19 is one of complete stagnation, as you know. So yeah. in every industry, when it comes to the supply chain from farms all the way to manufacturing, all the way to other processing and, and distribution, everything is kind of at a standstill and people are going to have to figure out what those supply chains look like, adapt to new realities. In fact, what's most difficult is they're going to have to adapt to temporary realities, uh, install knowledge and infrastructure to adapt uh, while the world is reeling under the shock of this because they might fall under essential goods. That's happening right now in India in places like Mumbai where you have these, um, these logistics challenges currently and uh, a lot of the work that's being done is not going to be is not going to be enduringly valuable once the lockdowns, et cetera, are lifted or once we go into next year and we don't have further lockdowns or two years from now. So that's, that's definitely a worry. The alternative protein ecosystem has also been affected by this, of course. So you'll see companies like Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods, maybe they were looking at entering China uh, and, and launching pork products in China because pork is eating, eaten in huge volumes in China. And they might have to push those plans back by a little bit. You'll see a lot of companies in our sector that were perhaps doing more broad R&D who now have to hold on to cash. So they're, they're focused narrowly perhaps on, on only one line of R&D. They literally cannot enter their labs as well. And that affects the supply chain, of course, because the idea of uh, being able to bring a product to market and scale it up, you actually need to be able to develop that product first. And then all, all manufacturing except the most essential might be shut down as well. So there are, there are hurdles at every stage of this. But the broad trend towards a general sense of awareness and a general sense of focus on healthfulness and sustainability is only going to accelerate as a result of this, right? So to be clear, when I say, when I say animal agriculture has huge effects on public health, this is exactly what I mean. Yeah. The, the reason that many 
75% of pandemics have occurred in the last 20 years has been because of zoonoses or bugs that jump, viruses that jump from animals to humans. Yeah. Now, this is happening uh, in places like wet markets in China, which is kind of similar to your corner chop shop in, in India where people go to buy chicken for their house, but on a much larger scale. It's happening because animals of different species and including wild animals are housed next to each other in these wet markets. So you have a bat and you have a pangolin and you have a civet cat and you have a bunch of chickens and you have a bunch of seafood all in one place, which means that viruses that are, that are being hosted on bats can jump from bats to pangolins to humans. And it's also happening to a great degree uh, on the other side of the twin threat of pandemics and viruses uh, is also antimicrobial resistance. Yeah. So 70 to 80% of antibiotics that are consumed in places like the US and India are actually fed to animals. The reason for this is because when you're growing animals at that scale, they're in close contact with each other. You have to keep them healthy. So in addition to, to COVID-19 towards the end of last year, all of last year, something that was happening in China called the African swine fever was decimating their pig population. So pigs in the largest market for pork anywhere in the world, where something like one third to half of the world's pigs live, were dying due to something called African swine fever. Yesterday, there was a story in the South China Morning Post as well, that a similar bug on Chinese shrimp farms is really decimating that population as well. And this isn't limited to China, by the way. So it's, it's very easy to, to kind of beat China with a stick for a lot of this stuff. And, yeah. and I should say, you know, I, I think the country definitely needs to look at its supply chains and look at cleaning them up a little bit, but it happens everywhere. So while COVID-19 was, was all the news, in February 2020 and in March 2020, we've had multiple instances of avian flu, bird flu, in different parts of the world, including in Uttar Pradesh. So 74 people were diagnosed with, with a type of bird flu earlier this year while COVID-19 was going on. There's a lot of spillover from the animal agriculture ecosystem into human health, right? That's not even, again, getting into all the issues of food insecurity because we're using all this land, growing all these crops for those animals when we really should be using land way more efficiently to feed the world's population better. So I think people are more and more cognizant of all of these realities and it's going to accelerate movement into these categories over time. Yeah. And I mean, it's not just like you said, rightly, it's not just China, it's in India. And I remember reading a report in the US as to how their animal agriculture supply chains work and not just antibiotics, as in they, they're not just feed antibiotics to their animals, but they also put a lot of steroids in them, you know, to sort of accelerate the process of getting them to a certain size before they're ready for slaughter. Yeah. So, I mean, look, the process of raising and slaughtering animals is one which is riddled with huge challenges when it comes to human health and nutrition. And so we definitely need to think through all of these things. And again, like I said, What's being brought starkly into focus right now is all of the risks associated with the system because of COVID-19 globally. I think that there's going to be many people and institutions and governments who are going to take a look at this again and say, look, maybe we need to create more resilient supply chains that have nothing to do with animals. And that, that's kind of where we hope to come in and advise folks on how to, yeah. on how to build from the ground up, uh, present a vision to feed the world exactly what it wants, which is delicious, tasty, nutritious meat and protein, but absolutely make it in a different way that doesn't introduce all these negative externalities on the world. Yeah. 
a big part of why people are eating all of this meat also has to do with the growing demand for meat, right? And I think in India as well, with our middle class growing exponentially, there is slated to be an increase in India's demand for meat. And so do you think that the COVID-19 pandemic can actually sort of change or, or sort of disrupt the statistic that exists for India at least? If that's true, it's happening for the wrong reasons in many cases, because uh, uh, many of the people that are going to eat meat for the first time or eat increased amounts of meat, increased quantities of meat, are going to do so because they have prior been unable to do it because they have not been able to afford it. Yeah. So what we're saying essentially is, will COVID-19 allow people to rethink the way they eat? I don't think so, actually. In fact, it's going to drive many, many more people into poverty. So if you look at the, the middle range of estimates for how much the economy globally is going to shrink, we're looking at something like 185 million people being driven into extreme poverty over the next year, year and a half, okay. which isn't fantastic. So this is happening not for the right reasons. What we want to be able to do is, as I said earlier, provide an affordable, sustainable supply of meat for everyone at all socioeconomic levels of the pyramid. So that, that's hugely important to us. Whether this situation gives the planet a reprieve for some time, we still have to work as hard as we possibly can to build alternatives. And that includes working with scientists. It includes working with large corporations to install manufacturing infrastructure, working with governments to create incentives, fellowships, grants, etc., and regulatory pathways to market, and then working with entrepreneurs and philanthropists to make sure that, that these things actually come to market. So all of that stuff doesn't stop for us. The latent demand for meat will probably exist. It is an aspirational good, as, as I mentioned, as countries get wealthier, more and more people tend to eat meat, which is what you were talking about as well. So I think that you know, the goal here is not, to, is not to take away from people what they want to eat. And hopefully over time, we can give that viable option, even during times of, of recession, like is undoubtedly going to happen now. Yeah. And do you have any tips as to how people who are listening in on this episode can make a difference today by whether it's understanding the issue or by consuming something different or just sort of bringing about a change in how they eat, you know, drawing upon your own experience as from when you were, say, an, a, a non-mindful consumer and to your sort of sustainable awakening. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I, I think that, you know, individual personal change and uh, consuming less meat, etc. is great. We don't, we don't personally message to consumers to do any of that stuff because we're laser focused on getting those consumers that want to eat meat, the meat they want to eat, like I said. But the, the goal overall is to live on this planet altogether, is to steward this planet through all the crises it currently faces. And so I think there's definitely a lot that we can do as consumers to do that. So as I said, you know, switching out, if you live in a place where you actually can, uh, at least trying some plant-based meats, plant-based eggs, plant-based dairy, um, and seeing how you can switch things out uh, would be fantastic. If you're in a place like India where these products really haven't come to market yet, I would say to the extent possible, try to, to switch out or eat, eat less meat. But I, I, I honestly don't, that isn't something that we do. This isn't really a core piece of what I think about all day is not how to advocate for people to eat less meat. Okay. <laughs> uh, with, with respect to, on the other side of the coin, so if you forget consumption for a second, I think bringing your talents to this sector would be hugely helpful. So across the board, when it comes to scientific entrepreneurial talent, 
when it comes to scientific academic talent, when it comes to business and marketing, uh, entrepreneurial and academic talent, when it comes to policy making and regulatory expertise, when it comes to philanthropy, when it comes to investment, all of these things across the board are what we need in our sector. So to give you an example, clean energy, which is renewable energy, gets roughly 350 to $400 billion of investment a year with a B. Okay. And what that means is it gets, by the way, $300,000 million of investment. That's what a billion is. Yeah. Right. Uh, our sector gets roughly $1 billion a year of industrial investment, which is literally 400 times less. Yeah. Okay. And if you look at open access science and philanthropy, it gets something like $20 million a year, which is a ridiculously low, low number. That's 400 times 50. That's 20,000 times less investment than clean energy gets in total. And mm -hmm. we're talking about a problem where if you look at any of the environmental issues across the board, animal agriculture is responsible to the degree of being one of the top three causes for any of those small and big, large and local. It's one of the top three causes of any of those things. So if we're talking about clean energy, getting huge investment and billions of dollars from governments and private industry, et cetera, clean meat, or plant-based and cultivated meat should also get that. Yeah, I think that's a great place to end our episode. Do you have any final comments that you want to give? Yeah, absolutely. So if you want to learn more about our work, you can find us on the socials. If you look for variously, I think, Good Food Institute India. We have a lot of work that we're doing to engage people who are entrepreneurs or just basically interested in our sector. We have our own podcast called Feeding 10 Billion on IVM Studios. We have a community called GF Ideas India, where we have webinars every month, but during the period of social distancing and lockdown, we're doing it every week, where we get industry experts, scientists, et cetera, to come on and talk about our sector. Uh, so we're doing a lot. And if you, if you want to get involved, please email us at india at gfi.org. Yeah, and I'm, I'll make it a point to include all of the social media links, the website links, in the description for the episode as well so that people have an easier time to navigate how to get in touch with you and sort of access all of the resources that you have and feeding 10 billion is an excellent podcast i have actually listened to a few of your episodes which is what encouraged me to reach out to you for my own episode so thank you so much for being on here varun i think that was a great episode i think you explained things wonderfully and yeah thank you so much for taking time out for this Thank you so much. I appreciate your time as well. Thank you for having me. And to everyone who's listening, depending on when you're listening to this, uh, stay safe and ideally stay home. Take care. <laughs>